What's up guys, Pastor John here. We pray that this message encourages you in your faith journey and we believe that God has an incredible plan for your life and our hope is that tools like this sermon will help you become who he has created you to be. Now listen, in order to truly flourish and thrive like God intends for your life, it takes community. What I mean by that is we don't believe that simply by attending church online alone that you're going to be able to become every bit of who God has created you to be and who you want to be to grow spiritually. You need other people. And we would love to help you connect with other people right here at Greenhouse. True growth happens when we're rooted in a community that supports, uplifts, and walks alongside us. And so with that in mind, we would love for you to join us in person on Sundays right here at Western High School or in microchurches throughout the week. Um, listen, if you don't live near our church here in South Florida, please reach out to us. We would love to help you find and thrive in a local faith community near you. We're excited to partner with you as we all become passionate followers of Jesus. God bless you. We're gonna be in Luke chapter five today, wrapping up the Seat at the Table series. And I'm just so excited to be here with you. Like John said, we are from up in Jacksonville. Neither my wife or I had ever been there before we planted there. We had lived there for a month before our first service. And it's just been a blast getting to be up there. We will be two years old in January, and the Lord has just been good. Yes. Thanks to you guys. You have been such great supports, both from your staff, being such a support mentally, emotionally, spiritually, logistically. But also you guys, I don't even know if you know this, but you help us exist. You have given to help us exist. So thank you for your generosity. Luke chapter 5, starting in verse 27 here. Jesus calls Levi, if you have like little headings in your scripture, it says Jesus calls Levi. After this, he went out and saw a tax collector named Levi sitting at the tax booth. And he said to him, follow me. And leaving everything, he rose and followed him. And Levi made him a great feast in his house. And there was a large company of tax collectors and others reclining at the table with them. And the Pharisees and their scribes grumbled at his disciples, saying, Why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? And Jesus answered them, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. Lord, help us to remember our lane and to walk in it fully. In Jesus' name. Being here with you guys at a high school, it kind of reminds me of like my high school days. I don't know if any of you kind of even get like some emotional trauma when you walk back into a high school remembering those days. For me personally, I'm sad to say I'm one of those kind of peaked in high school guys. Like it's all just gone downhill since that day. But I remember there's one moment that is a critical, is this safe to walk on? Yeah, cool, all right. There's one moment that is critical to your high school experience. And it's the first time you walk into the cafeteria trying to get your seat at the right table. Because the problem is there are some tables that look like the right table. Whoever is sitting there, the girl you were interested in the class for, there's a, there's a seat that looks entertaining. But the reality with the high school lunch table is there's only a finite amount of spaces. And so in those moments, it's not like, a, oh, come on in. It's a fighting for scraps environment. And what happens in my life, and maybe you're holier than I am, but in my life personally, I can sometimes treat the access to the Father the same way I treated the lunchroom in high school. And I think that it's fighting for scraps. And I live in such a way, like the Pharisees in this passage, where it's not we are called to bring in, to bring good news to the poor and bring justice to the afflicted. Instead, it's I'm trying to become VIP++ in the holy huddles that we call church. And then we wonder why in my lifetime, 40 million people in America have left the church. 
It's not a hard thing to study. I can answer it pretty quickly for you. It's because the people of God have forgotten the heart of God, and we have lived in such a way that we have lived for our own hearts, trying to tune God to our hearts, which is the Lord calls us seen, known, loved, and precious, and we add the ER. I want to be more precious. I want to be more seen. I want to be more loved. And I have this idea of God that some of us have with our family units, which is only one kid gets to be the favorite. Some of you, you're, you're winding down from Thanksgiving because all you heard was how, why can't you be more like so-and-so? And if it's not overtly said, it's like subtly said. And some of you, now you're gearing up mentally because now you're going to your home or to your in-law's home, and it's like, oh, Lord. Come, Lord Jesus. The 23rd is a great day for you to come, Jesus. Like, just come, Lord Jesus. Why? Because tables are a time of exposure. You can't sit at a table. You can try. In high school, many of us did this. We tried to blend at the table we were at. We tried to look, act, feel the same way. But many of us in this room, we've now left our home of birth, and now we're coming back. And now it's more exposing of who's at the table, who you are, who your family is. Like, it's like this moment of deep intimacy when you're at the table. And that's why the Pharisees are so upset in this passage with Jesus, is because to eat at the table with somebody is a sign of deep love and intimacy. It's a profound moment, especially in this time in this culture, to bring someone into your home to have a feast with them. This is like a setting of who you are as a person. And so you don't invite just anybody. Like you're trying to invite like two tiers above where you fall in the in the pyramid scheme of society because you're trying to work your way up. And instead, here's what Levi, who's Matthew, the Gospel of Matthew was written by Levi, two names, I wasn't there, don't ask me. Um, But anyway, so Levi Matthew brings all these other tax collectors in and he brings them to a table. And here's the thing that matters about the seat at the table. And I want you to remember this about the seat at your table. It's not about what's at the table. It's about whose table it is. And the truth of the gospel for those that are near us and are far from us that we have an opportunity to preach the gospel to and to invite into a covenant with Jesus is this. It doesn't matter what's at your table. It matters whose table is it. Some of you, you're like, discipleship training sounds awesome. I know two things. I know we meet at 1030 and I know Jesus loves me. There's not a lot to go around at my table. Can I encourage you, it doesn't matter what you know, it doesn't make your table more beneficial. Because the hard reality, if we look at just the truth, the statistics don't lie, if we look at the truth, those with excess at the table are not bringing people to the table anyway. And so we can't wait until people have, it's not like a wait till I have more to invite more. A lot of us, that's like our thought is, like I live in an apartment right now and it's this weird balance of trying to bring people into our space because we're the pastors, but also people have way nicer places to bring people into and so it's like this weird limbo of, Hey, I would love to get everybody together. You want to host it? And it's like this thing. And a piece of it is just logistics. Another piece of it is like, I'm a grown man still living in an apartment with a wife and a baby, and I would love to be in a house. And I just, I'm tired of, I'm a little bit ashamed of this table, if I can be honest. But the thing is, the people that are coming to my table, they're not coming for the square footage. And if they are, they're not going to enjoy me anyway. We meet in a college campus. We have it for two hours. It is, like John said, this is a ragtag group of disciples. This is like the cruise line of what we're, but anyway, that's not the point right now. The thing is that so many of us, we're like so consumed with what's on the table that we forget why we're gathering in the first place. And so the why this matters, like why am I even talking to you today is this. Many who have received the love of God don't share that love to others. So many of us, we've received it, and now we're afraid that if I extend it, I'm going to lose it. 
if I extend it to someone else, like, I don't know what's next. And if they start asking me questions, I don't know what's next. Some of us in here, if we're even more honest, we're still surprised that the building didn't burn on our way in. If we can just be honest with where we're at, some of us are like, man, I didn't think I could make it in here. I didn't think there was no way with the life I've lived. And so now, how can I ever bring other people in? Because they know me and I know me and we know where I was. And I feel different now, but my life isn't. And we are so fixated on what's on the table. And what I want you to know is the same thing that was true for Levi can be true for us, which is this. It doesn't matter what's on the table. Some of the most immensely meaningful moments of my life and community had nothing at the table. And the truth of it is it doesn't matter what you bring to the table. It's Jesus' table in the first place. What happens to us, and if you're, maybe you're not like me, maybe you're so much better than me, but for me, I've been in church my entire life. I've been in this forever. I felt called to be a pastor in fifth grade. Like, I have known this was my lane for forever. And so what that inevitably means is I have grown cold so many times. I have forgotten what it means for the first love. Why? Because my first love was when I was four. So it's been a little while. Like, I'm an old married lover of the Lord. Like, I am way past the honeymoon phase with my walk with the Lord. And so what can so easily happen is I can let myself slip into that. Of, oh, yeah, they're going to sing this song next. Oh, that means everybody's going to raise their hands at this part of the song. Oh, and I can get into playing the game of organized religion. And some of us, that's an easy thing to fall into. And if you're not there yet, I just want to encourage you. It doesn't have to happen. It doesn't have to be that way. It's not supposed to be that way. And so if you're in here and you're like, you hear people talk about like the honeymoon phase of following Jesus, it's never meant to end. The beginning of our time with the Lord face to face when he comes for us is the marriage supper of the lamb. We're just getting married when we get there. Like this is, this is not supposed to be like some old drudgery life with him. But some of us tend to drift into this place of just, I'm gonna stay in my spot. I'm gonna sit in my seat, I'm gonna serve in my thing, I'm gonna go to my microchurch. But if we're honest, we even have this mindset of people don't wanna hear it. We live in an age now where if I'm honest with my latest, like if we kept stats on evangelism, I am in a cold streak, if I can just be honest. It's like I invite people to church, they're not coming to church. I tell people about Jesus, they don't wanna hear about Jesus. I tell people my story and how the Lord's redeemed it and they just, they love my story until Jesus shows up. And I'm just in like what feels like a cold streak with sharing the gospel with people. And I can easily, I'll just be honest, evangelism is not like my top tier gift. And so I can quickly be like, well, I'll let the evangelists do what the evangelists do. And I'll just be here ready to take care of them when they get here. And that's not the call of God. What that does, what I'm doing in that moment is I'm actually building a wall out of the table that the Lord prepared for me. And the walls of separation are deadly to the kingdom of God. So why are we here today? Because God's children embrace God's compassion for the lost. They embrace his compassion for the lost. Why did he come? If you're super Bible familiar, you'll know this first, but Jesus even tells his disciples, I have come. Why? That you may have life and life abundant. What else did he come to do? I have come to seek and to save the lost. He didn't come to encourage and stir up the Pharisees. He came to seek and to save the lost. When we see the life of Jesus, he spends very little time patting the backs of the religiously stringent, and he spends a lot of time lifting up the heads of the broken and desolate. Why? Because that is the nature of our God. And so if you're in here and you're like, discipleship training, I can do that in three years. You can do it today. If you, I would encourage you to read the gospel accounts, even as we're coming into, like we're in Hanukkah, we're coming to Christmas. As we're in this time, I would encourage you to pick one gospel account and read it and focus on the disciples. None of them are all stars. 
But what we see out of Levi, a.k.a. Matthew, is this. The second he heard the call to follow him, what's he do? He prepares the table. He prepares the table, and he doesn't try to bring in just the disciples to prove that he was good enough. He doesn't bring in those that are higher up in tier of him to prove, oh, well, Jesus says I'm something, so now here's proof that I'm something. What he does is he brings those around him to say, you've got to meet this guy. Tax collectors were seen as even lower than a second-class citizen. To be a tax collector in this time means you were of, primarily, you were of Jewish descent, but you neglected being Jewish, and instead you kind of sold out to Rome, and you were kind of like this like weird semi-spy go-between kind of dude, and what was happening is you were making your money off the interest that you charged your brothers and sisters, and you gave Rome what was theirs, and you took what was on top. Probably not a super popular guy, so why does he invite a bunch of tax collectors? Because if you're a tax collector, you probably only have like a small social circle of fellow tax collectors to spend time with, and still that's where Jesus wants to be. I think a lot of us were like, Jesus doesn't belong in my friend group. Jesus doesn't want to be where I've been. That's exactly what he came to do. That's exactly why he called you his. That's exactly why he empowers us to go. He doesn't say, hey, come in here, shower the world off you for six months, go through some detox, and then you can go back out. One of the first quasi-missionaries that we see in Scripture is the woman who Jesus meets at the well. Not the cleanest story. And yet, what does she do? She runs back to the village that shamed her and scorned her and rejected her and said, you've got to come and meet this man who's told me everything I've done. They knew what she had done, and it wasn't great. And she says, come and meet the man who told me. Why? Because when Jesus gets his hands on the scraps of my life, he turns it into a feast, and the feast is him. It's his grace, it's his love, it's his life that has sufficiency for you evermore. He doesn't need you to bring a lot. He just needs you to bring him to the equation. He just needs you to just for one moment say, maybe I don't have it all figured out. In fact, a lot of us, if we're honest, we're kind of preparing our stories right now for the Christmas or Hanukkah tables that we're going to be walking into soon because we know the judgment seat of insert relative that is on the judgment seat of your household, of your family, you know you have to have a certain level of life status, a certain level of achievement, a certain level, or they're just going to remind you about cousin down the road who's done so much more than you in so much less time. And so we're trying to like fill up our story with enough sustenance to feel important. And what Jesus says is, I see through all of that. In fact, what you do doesn't, like, if you don't remember, I'm the one who died. (laughs) Like, what you do isn't that impressive to me. But still I delight in you, and still I want you. And I, sometimes, if I can be honest, I drift into Pharisee mind, and I'm like, that doesn't make sense. It makes no sense to me that a holy and righteous God who did all the work by himself still says, hey, Zach, come and hold the flashlight. And then he delights in that. And he's like, I'm so proud of you. Well done, good and faithful servant. It's like, you did all of it. I'm just here, shaky-handed, holding a flashlight, fumbling over my words, and don't even know what I'm supposed to be doing to help you out in this process. And that's what the Lord says, well done. But many of us, we have a complex with this reality that God's heart is filled with compassion for the lost and that ours is supposed to follow him. And one of us, we keep the lost at a distance because we want God to see a difference between me and them. Because we read the stuff about how Israel is supposed to be a set-apart nation, holy and set-apart, holy and set-apart, a city on a hill, holy and set-apart, sacred, all these things. And so what happens is we say, okay, then I'm going to stand back here in the light And I'll let the lost stay out there in the dark, and then Jesus will know that I'm his. But this is going all over the Bible, so if you're not very Bible familiar, please just bear with me for a second. But there's this young man named David 
who's out in the fields taking care of his father's sheep, and he's got six older brothers. All of them are taller, smarter, better looking than him, far more qualified for leadership positions. And when the priest is coming to anoint the next king, David's father sends out the six other brothers who have the looks and the skills to pay the bills and all that kind of stuff. And they, if you were just looking like, we're coming up on an election year, Lord help us all. But if you just are looking across the debaters across the stage, it's like, he looks legit, he's too short, he's too old, he's weird. What are they doing there? I thought they were in jail. Anyway, all this stuff and all this is happening. I didn't mean that. Anyway. Sorry, Guyana. Anyway, and we, and we look at the lineup, but then there's this little young guy out in the field whose father didn't even consider that he had enough to bring to the table. And the Lord tells the high priest, go get him. He's my chosen instrument. If you look at the lineup, he brought the least amount to the table. He was not skilled and great in battle. He was not the leader of nations. He was not the big man on campus. He was the little brother who was given the menial task of watching the sheep. But he had something on him that was different. It was the father's heart. The father's heart is what allows there to be anything at our table anyway. The father's heart is what allows us to bring people in. It's not that you know the 16 fundamental truths of the assemblies of God. It's not that you know the tulip. It's not that you know the 76 ordinances of whatever other church. That doesn't really move the heart of men from lost to light. Trust me, because I've had to memorize them. It does nothing for my soul except for drain me. But when you have the heart of a Levi, when you have the heart of a woman at the well, and it's, I was messed up. I was a traitor to you. Like Levi had to look the people he invited to the table in the eyes and say, I betrayed you. But you've got to come to Jesus. You've got to come hear what he has to say. You have to come and see this man. You have to experience the riches of his grace. And my fear is that for some of us, we've let the jadedness of the cultural moment kind of cut off that part of following Jesus. We've kind of let the fact that now it's just, oh, we'll let people decide what they want to decide. Amen, let people decide. But are we even bringing the options to the table? Are we even, have you even considered what's before you? Have we even done the due diligence of remembering that if all that this life was for was for you just to say Jesus is Lord, then the second you said it, why didn't you just whoosh up? If all it was is for you and your silo of holiness to make it, then it makes way more sense for the second you walk up here and say, Jesus, I'm a sinner and you are Lord, it should just be like a, almost like the old bank teller things that like you should just like go up the second you get here. If that's all it was for, that's what should happen. But it doesn't. In fact, what actually happens is your life doesn't end, it begins because you have this whole new purpose on you now and what the purpose for you is, is to bring people to the table of the Lord. To the table of the Lord. Not to your theological depth, not to how smart you've become, not to how much better you are than them than you were six months ago when you were just like them, not to show them your moral stringent behaviors, but to show them I am still who I was then. I've changed some behaviors through the grace of God. I'm still who I was. I'm still flawed. I'm still broken. I'm still insufficient. And yet the Lord delights in me. And yet he called me his. And if he can call me his, of course he calls you his. He was slain before the foundations of the earth. What that means is he was not the plan B because Adam and Eve sinned. He was plan A from the beginning. Before Adam and Eve messed up, before you messed up, before you ran, before you did like this hot and cold yes and no, like all, before all of that, the plan has always been Jesus. You didn't throw him off. You didn't confuse him. He didn't get like coerced into having to do this for you. The plan was from the beginning. He was coming for you. But he didn't just come for you. 
He came for those that are around us as well. And that's why we stay, and that's why we now have these tables. But what do we do? And here's what we do. Children of God, our call is simple. To build tables out of the walls of separation that we have allowed to build up. Because that's the beauty of Jesus. What Jesus does is he immediately transforms and he immediately redeems and he immediately repurposes. The very same things that you think disqualify you from making disciples are the very same things that God put on you to make disciples. It just has to be repurposed in light of the kingdom. You guys remember this dude named Moses? Had a stutter, killed a man, ran away, got to live in the life of luxury while his brothers were slain in the Nile, got to live in the life of luxury while his brothers were slaves. What we see and what they may have seen as other things, what the Lord saw was, this is now a guy who's been trained in Egyptian diplomacy. We see it as he was skirting out slavery. The Lord says, I was preparing him for how to work with a Pharaoh. What we see as he was a runaway and he gave up, I, the Lord sees this was a time for him to find me. This was, he had to get away because when you're in the palace, it's hard to need a savior. When you're running in the wilderness, it's really easy to find a savior. And so what we see is this weird, messy story. There's this theme of the Lord seeking out Moses the whole way. And it's what he does. And the very same guy who killed an Egyptian slave master and was hoping that would like ingratiate him into his people, he was never meant to be ingratiated in. He was called to lead them out. And so if all he ever did was kill the guy and get ingratiated in with the people, he could have never led them out. So all of it that seems like ups and downs in his life was actually the Lord pulling him and pulling him to the point he was called to be. And the same thing in your life. You look at your life, you look at the rap sheet of your life, and it's like, there's so much damage, there's so much brokenness, there's so much offense, there's so much hurt. Can I be really honest, and we don't always say this, there may be a lot of earthly work to be done to fix some of the stuff. And I think sometimes we try to undersell life and oversell. Like, if you just call on Jesus, one, it's the best choice you'll ever make. And two, it'll change your life forever. Just three, raise your hand and it'll fix everything. Yes, amen. And you're going to have to fix some earthly things you did. Like, if I was in debt before I followed Jesus, you can check your Bank of America after. It's probably still going to be the same number. If you were incredibly rude to your spouse on the way here, she probably still remembers what you said. So there is like that little bit of a tango of, yes, everything's redeemed, and now you're called to work with Jesus in the work of reconciliation. He does the big reconciliation of we had no reason to even look to him, and he came down and gave us access. We now do the horizontal reconciliation of, no, I did actually wrong you, and I'm now going to model Jesus, and I'm going to lay down my rights. You offended me, and I did nothing wrong. I'm still going to lay down my rights and I'm going to choose to bring in reconciliation. So it's this both and. I just didn't want to pretend like that's not true. Like there is a work to be done. Like to take a wall and make it a table takes some work. Jesus did the ultimate work, but he still calls us in to do some work. And so what we have to do is children of God have to build tables out of the walls of separation. The first thing you have to do is identify the wall. If any of you are in construction, some walls are what they call load-bearing. And you don't tear those down. There are some things that stay, but there are other walls that are just, like if you look at like the different eras of house building, there was a phase where we just wanted every room to be its own solo room, and now it's open floor plan. So some of those walls get wiped out, some of them stay. That wall feels important. Probably don't tear that one down, mostly because it's the outside of the building. Like that one kind of stays, but there are some walls we have to identify the wall. Part of that in your life is what is the tendency in me that keeps people away? 
what is the thing in me that like when it happens, I'll be open in microchurch until we talk about, then there's a wall. I will talk with people about Jesus until they start trying to argue with me about, I will follow Jesus until he starts telling me about, and we have these walls up. So the first step is we have to identify, what's that wall in my life? What's that relationship that I am not submitting to Christ that has caused actually a separation between me and the Lord and me and the lost? What is that thing that I, oh, I just have this. Like, for me, I grew up with a temper. Not just like a red-faced, sweaty kid temper, like a slight violent streak temper. Like, I destroyed a lot of property temper. Kind of not an ideal character trait in a pastor. So that's been one that I've had. Oh, I have a temper. Well, what causes that temper? Well, how do I work through that temper? And now, praise God, I still get fiery, but I don't have the same temper. And I've been able to actually take that where there have been people in my life. I was a youth pastor before we planted. Guess who has a lot of tempers? 15-year-old kids without dads. And so I was able to actually take what felt like a wall and turn it into a table. And so that's what, that's what the Lord calls us to do. Like that thing you thought was a wall that kept you from being good enough is a table to identify you in and ingratiate you in with some tax collectors and sinners. We have to identify it though first. You can't just guess, like do the deep work of like, Lord, what is in me that I've prayed against my whole life, but you actually put it there for a reason. The second thing is once we've identified the wall, we have to invest time with the people that belong at that table. Have you ever just walked through sawgrass found a random person, said, hey, I'm having dinner at my house Thursday. I'd love for you to be there. If they come, that's a much bigger issue. <laughs> but still, like, that's not, you have to first invest time. Coming to the table is still a very, very intimate thing. It's different than it used to be, but it's still an intimate thing, like, because one, they now know where you live. Two, it's kind of hard to say, all right, we're done with this at 8.30, like, it's, it's just an investment. But before you get there, you have to do the work of investing time. Do you know the person? Do you know their walls? Do you know their hobbies, their likes, their dislikes? If they're pescatarian and you made steak because you just had people over, well, guess what? Now you've lost the table. And so we have to do these things of investing time. Learn the story of the person. And so my question for you with this one is, who needs to come to dinner this week? Not after the holidays, like there's a whole new batch of people after the holidays. Right here, right now, before the holidays, who do you know that needs to come to the table? Who's your coworker that's terrified of going back home and you kind of have the same feelings about going home, but you have Jesus and they don't and you can bring them in just to have some very non-official counseling and gospel-centered conversations? Who were the, it's not even like a whole, like I'm gonna present the gospel over this meal and by the time, you can't leave the table till it's done. Like, it's just even highlighting Jesus to them in these moments. The third thing, and it's only third because this was the way that I wrote it down, it's not third in importance, but we have to intercede. You are not the one they're coming to at the end of this. You are not the savior at the end of the story, so please don't do it by yourself. So many of us, the reason we get so anxious when it comes to like evangelism and opening up seats at the table is because we're so worried about the answers that we need to have prepared. I've noticed in my life that answers come much more easily when I've been prayed up and praying for this person than if I'm just, as they said back when we played video games back then, like spraying and praying and just hoping I hit something. Like there's a massive difference. You know, there's a huge difference in the two. And so I would encourage you, intercede now. In fact, I'm gonna make this even easier for you. When you walk out of here, you're gonna see a maroonish colored card that's about yay big. It says Christmas at Greenhouse in the front, I believe. Correct me if I'm wrong. 
on the back side of it, there's two. There's one that's just invite cards. Those are smaller. There's a bigger one. And on the right side of the bigger one on the back, it says VIP prayer list with five spots under it. Here's what I'm going to ask you to do. You're going to walk out of here. You're going to walk under the covered awning area. You're going to take a right. You're going to see a big wooden frame. You're going to see a bunch of those cards. Take one. If you land high E, take two. And we're going to not just hand out invite cards. Yes, please do. But also actually begin praying, Lord, who is not just like, oh, I would love if this happened, but who's like just the low-hanging fruit of like, I don't even realize they're in my life. I don't even realize the influence you've given me in their life. I don't even realize the access that we have. And if I just began praying for them and inviting them, they would come get transformed and they would be a follower of Jesus literally on Christmas Eve. And so that's the third part, intercede. We make intercession really easy. There's a prayer card out there. Take it, fill it out, put it in your Bible. And every morning, Lord, I pray for boom, 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 boom. And not just that they'll come to church, God, help me to know how to make a disciple out of them. And then that kind of ties into the third one, invite them into Jesus-focused environments. I can say with pretty high confidence that this is a Jesus-focused environment. I haven't been to any of them, but I can say with pretty high confidence that your microchurches are Jesus-centered environments. But I mentioned it before that 40 million people have left the church in my lifetime. Here's what's really interesting about some of the data, some of the stats. This was all powered by AI, research, all this kind of stuff. Out of the 40 million that left, without any hard work at all, with just an invitation, about 20-ish million of them said, yeah, I'll come back. I just moved, the pandemic, they really butchered how they handled the last election, whatever. But like, I'd come back, I just, I just had to take a minute. That's 20 million. Here's what we know about the flow of how people have moved since the pandemic. From beginning of the pandemic until about a year ago, not even a year ago, 3,000 people a day were moving to Florida. And they weren't going to Palatka. They were coming here and to Tampa and Orlando and to Jacksonville. But what that also caused was a massive inner migration where the truth is most people came here. And a lot of you know this, a lot of your friends are now in Tampa and Orlando and Jacksonville. But what this has caused is a massive reshuffling where a lot of people just moved mid-ish pandemic I'm like, I don't really want to go into a room with a thousand people all breathing on me, so I'm not going to go back right now. And all it would take is a simple invitation because they moved here and they just haven't found a place to get plugged in. That's 20 million people. Not all of them are here, but a lot of them are here. Then there's another pocket of them, about 10 million people that said, I would go back, but I'm not going back to what I went to. So if they were Orthodox, they're not going back to Orthodox. If they were part of a church plant, they're not coming to a church plant. But what's really cool is you attend a church that's radically different than a lot of experiences that I've had growing up in church. And so I would encourage you, even this is just like, this is just low hanging, easy opportunity, opportunities for people to invite them to church, but invite them. Microchurch is also a great way to do this. Getting them into a microchurch. Some people coming to church, church on a Sunday morning is a huge ask. You and a bunch of friends getting together. If you do like green nights in your microchurch, that's like perfect. Hey, we're playing board games and somebody's got a pizza maker and we're just firing up pizzas and playing games. Come hang out with us. Oh, well, what if they, who cares what they do? <laughs> Just get them there. Get them to a Jesus-focused environment and let the Lord do what the Lord does and the Holy Spirit do what the Holy Spirit does. You can't, you can't get around the Holy Spirit's work in this because you are not their savior. We are the guy at the airport with the two cones just directing them, but the pilot has to decide where they're going. And you're not their pilot. You can point all day long. Some pilots are gonna go rogue and we pray that the Lord intervenes. But there are a lot of people that are just like, I would go. I just need to find a place to go. Yeah. I just need to find a place to show up. Yeah. 
I'm just looking for a place with a person who vaguely has some interest with me that would talk to me beyond the 30-second, hey, how you doing, blessed and highly favored, and dip. That's all they're looking for, so somebody who sees them and cares. Because, again, if they moved here, they're just looking for somebody. The truth is, the longer it wears on, they're even more desperate. Just looking for someone who would care. And how sad is it that sometimes it's the people of God that seem to care the least. So micro can be very helpful. So can macro. Because macro church is not just a holy huddle of the saints to see who sings the best. It's not a talent show. A lot of times we can feel like it is. It's not a talent show. There are so many better communicators than me. If this was a talent show, I'm not the one holding the mic. It's not a talent show. It's the gathering of people to witness the glory of God. That happens in micro, but something happens when we're together in macro. It's just, it's just a little different. Things in micro happen that can't happen here. Things in macro happen that can't happen there. We need the both and. And so why do we even do all this? Why is it my job? Why does this matter? The truth is because Jesus came at a great cost. The cost was his inheritance. He didn't have to come. Like, he had it all. He was at the right hand of the Father. He was the dude. He was God in the flesh. He had access. And he came down to this earth. And he took his inheritance of access to the Father and oneness with God. And he still has it. Don't worry. I'm not saying anything crazy. He still has it. But he also made it available to us. I had no access. I could kneel down right there and pray until the kids show up to school tomorrow and do it every day. And it will not give me access. I can do all this stuff. I can fast until September. I can do all the things, and it will not move the heart of God on my behalf. Jesus came, and the heart of the Father showed his compassion for his kids through him coming in the flesh and dying the death that I deserved and giving me the inheritance of access to him that I had no business getting. And he didn't just do it for me, and he didn't just do it for you, and he didn't just do it for some of us. He did it that all would know him that all would have access to him. And Jesus came at this cost to bring us in. And it reminds me of the parable of the prodigal son. I'm not gonna get all into it today for the sake of time, but with the prodigal son, there's two sons live in the father's house. The older brother stays in the house, does the work of a servant and stays in the house. The younger brother says, dad, you don't know what you're doing. Give me my inheritance now. Which is the equivalent of saying, I wish you were dead and you are now dead to me. And he goes off and he squanders all of it. And while he's living in a pigsty, literally, not like a bad apartment, like an actual pigsty, he's living in that place. And he says, are not even the servants in my father's house better taken care of than this? It would be better just to be a servant in the house. I don't need to be a son again, but just to be a servant in the house again, it's worth it. And so he's coming back to his father. And his father sees him while he's a great distance off, and he runs out to him and he covers him. Not just in a sweet hug, he covers him because by old tradition. He should have been stoned for disgracing the family. Um, but he doesn't just do that. He covers him. He gives him back a ring, which marks his authority and his power. And he brings him in and they slaughter the fattened calf and have a celebration. The son was just hoping to get a seat at the table. Just like a, just the crumbs off the table, honestly. And not only that, he is the honored guest when he comes back to the father. And the same thing happens in your life. When you come back to the Father, you don't get shelf-lifed for the next six years to see if it's real. You don't get, like, put off in the corner to see if you mean it, and then you have to pray your way in. Like, when you come to the Lord, there is a celebration that takes place that is unprecedented. But I do want you to consider, what if you had run into the older brother instead? Because while the celebration's going on, the older brother stays out and works in the field, which is a huge sign of disrespect culturally. 
And so he just, dishonor, he just doesn't go. And then the dad comes out to him. He's like, what are you doing out here? And he said, I've been slaving for you for years, and you didn't even give me a goat. But here's the thing with inheritance. When the father gave the first half to the younger son, effectively that means everything that's left is the older son's. And so what the father says is, son, everything that's here is yours. You were the one that stayed so fixated on the work at hand and being a son that you didn't reap the joys of what's before you. And so I just want to talk to some older brothers for a second. The grace and the glory and the beauty of Jesus is yours already. Enjoy it. Delight in it. Rest in it. And to some younger brothers, it's time to come home. You're not going to get like a trial run. You're not going to get beta tested. You're not going to get like a we'll wait and see. When you call on the name of the Lord, Jesus says it with confidence, you will be saved. Not you might be, not if you do enough after, you will be saved. And so I'm going to pray for us today, but I want to just take a second. And if you're in here, and you can bow your heads and close your eyes just to give a moment of privacy. But if you're in here and you're like, I think I trust Jesus. I think I like the idea of Jesus. But I don't actually know if I've believed the truth that there is real access for me. I want to pray for you, not just that Jesus will be Lord. Yes, amen, absolutely, that Jesus will be Lord of your life and you will make that decision. But on top of that, that you'll walk out of here with a, there's an old hymn that says, Blessed Assurance, that you'll walk out of here with this blessed assurance that Jesus is your Lord and he is enough and you are enough and he did in fact choose you. And so if you're in here and you're just at a spot where you're like, Zach, I have heard of this, or maybe you've never heard of this, and you're just at a point of decision where I need Jesus to be the Lord of my life, to remove the shame, even as we sang before. There's no place for shame when it comes to face-to-face with Jesus. There's no space for doubt. And if you want to walk out of here with that confidence, I just want to know who I'm praying for. So you just slip a hand up quickly just so I know who I'm praying with. I just want to know that I have received the goodness of God. Yeah. And then kind of the second camp, you're ready to build a table. You've wrestled with it. You've battled with it. You're not sure if you have the skills to build it. You're not a builder by trade. You're not an evangelist by trade, whatever it is. And you're like, I hear this and I want to do it. I want to make disciples, but I don't know what to do. You have two steps. The first one is we're going to pray because until the Lord does the work that the Lord does, you can have the skills all day long, but they'll just sit on a shelf. Then the second thing you're going to do, if we can get that... uh, DT training QR code back up. I'm going to pray and then you're going to scan the QR code. And then you're going to go out to the tent and you're going to talk to AJ. And it's going to be the both end of the spirit of the Lord is going to empower you and the practical skills of people that are doing it are also going to encourage you and hone in those skills. And so if that's you and you're just like, I'm ready to build a table. If you'll just raise a hand just so I know who I'm praying for. Like, it's time for me to build a table and I want to do it today. Yeah. You can put your hands right back down. It's just a quick up, quick down. I'm gonna pray for us and then those will be our next steps after Pastor John comes up. But Jesus, I just pray over your church, over your people. Lord, that we will be marked by the same things you told us we would be marked by. Lord, some of your last words in John says, they will know that they are my disciples by their love for one another. And so Lord, will our love for one another truly be a mark that changes? Will the tables that we prepare for you to come and for you to move and for you to be what we are gathered around, Lord, would you just, just cause a radical move of discipleship to take place across South Florida. Lord, a part of the world that has just become so unchurched. It's not even like they left church anymore. It's like just unchurched. Like we've been raised in not church. We've been raised in not following you. 
Lord, will we take what we have, what little we bring to the table, what little understanding, little knowledge, little skill we have, and will you take it the same way you took the five loaves and the two fish from the young kid, and will you turn that into enough to bring discipleship across this area, across this region, so that every person that calls in the name of the Lord will be saved. But Lord, how can they call until they've heard about you? And how can they hear about you until they've been around somebody who loves you? So help us, Lord, to go and to build tables that you can be lifted up and that you can be exalted because you are worthy of every nation, tribe, and tongue proclaiming that you are Lord. And you choose us to partner with that. So help us, God. Even now as we're praying, will you begin to highlight people, highlight ways, highlight skills, highlight things in us that you've intentionally put there to use for such a time as this. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.